may be seated. Good morning. I'm Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here at GCF Valley. It's good to see you here this morning. And uh, especially if you are worshiping with us, maybe for the first time visiting family and friends on this uh, Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, glad that you are here. Trust that the Lord will continue to minister his kind grace uh, to you. Let's see. Where is... Okay, maybe we took care of that. There was a car that was going nuts, but I don't think it is going nuts anymore, so that's good. Uh, Okay, well, let me pray, and we'll jump into here the sermon we have for uh, this morning. Would you join me as I pray? Heavenly Father, give us ears to hear your word. There are a lot of things that we are hearing and that we are listening to on an average day and in an average week. Lord, it's actually very rare that we get to be in a place like this at a time like this to hear your voice speaking to us. So I pray that we would listen because your word is good and true and helpful, but it's also hard, sobering, and humbling. So help us to listen Not only just to listen, but to listen so that we might obey whatever you call us to do in this life and even in death. I pray that you would do this, Lord, for the sake of your glory. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Well, I'm not going to bury the lead this morning. I'm not going to bury the headline. I'm not going to have you wait until halfway or three-quarters through this sermon before you're finally putting the pieces together to figure out, oh, that's, that's where we're going. That's what this sermon is about. I'm actually going to resist the temptation to approach this text in any way other than the very plain, straightforward, clear teaching that it presents to us. So this text, this passage, this sermon this morning is about, and this is my drum roll, it's terrible, I know. But this is about death. Now, not yours, exactly. So if you are visiting with us, you're going to make it. I think you're going to live. That's the good news. I don't think, at least to my knowledge, nobody has died during one of my sermons. At least not physically. But that can't be said of all preachers. But this text and this sermon and this passage this morning is about death. And not about death in general. Some unnamed historical figure, some maybe popular guy who died in the past. No, Mark is much more specific. This is about the death of Jesus Christ, the true king, the Messiah, the Lamb of God, the sinless Son of God. That's where Mark has been heading. That's where he has pointed us to, really, in the last half of this book. And and beginning in chapter 11, Mark has just slowed down the process, hasn't he? We've seen that. From chapter 11 until now, we have the last week of the earthly life of Jesus. And last Sunday, it was down to the last few minutes of his earthly life. And this morning, brothers and sisters, the clock is at double zero. We are down to the last few seconds of the earthly life of Jesus, really his last few words. Now, none of this should surprise us. That doesn't shock us. After all, way back in Mark chapter 8, Jesus said to his disciples on three different occasions, he's going to go to the cross, and on the third day, he will rise again. That's his purpose. That's his mission, that he would provide atonement for the sins of the people and then be raised, defeating sin, death, and Satan. So his death and his resurrection 
are really two sides of the same coin. One is not accomplishing anything without the other. And we know that Jesus lived a very full life. He performed many miracles. He taught the crowds the truth. He welcomed people into the kingdom of God that were up to that point very unwelcome. And yes, he rose from the dead and his tomb is empty. And next week, Pastor Dave is going to preach on that. So please come back for that. But none of all that Jesus did, his miracles, his teachings, even his resurrection, none of that makes any sense without understanding his death. We have to understand what's going on with the death of Jesus. If we're to understand Jesus, if we're to understand his mission, well, we have to understand his death. We really can't make sense of Jesus unless we understand what's going on in his death. And that's not because, brothers and sisters, sometimes you hear this, you Christians, you're just so fixated on death. Like, what a bummer. Can you get over it? Why do you keep talking about death? Well, it's not that we have some death wish, and Jesus certainly didn't have a death wish. No, it is because the death of this man, the sinless son of God, the very son of God, literally changed human history. And his death is still changing human lives today. So these verses here, these six verses we have here in Mark 15, are really among the most important for us to get and to understand if we are to get and understand Jesus. You're not going to find, I think, six verses in the Bible that are more weighty and yet more wonderful than these. So I want to just walk through these verses here this morning and to show us exactly what went down, what happened in the death of Jesus. There are six important things that happen on the cross. I was, uh, or my, one of my kids was saying last night, Dad, you always have three points in your sermons. And I said, no, I don't. I have three points and a lot of subpoints. But then I said, well, I have six tomorrow, and there were some groaning. So if you're groaning right now, that's okay. You're not going to die. First, at the cross, darkness abounds. Darkness abounds, verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now, this, this detail, darkness, is so important that three out of the four gospel writers make mention of us. And so you might wonder, what's with the weather report? Why is that so important? Could this simply be an eclipse? Like, can we explain it? And, well, yeah, it's kind of weird, but it's probably an eclipse. Well, no, it's not an eclipse because that would only last for usually a couple minutes. And Passover, which is when Jesus died took place during a full moon, uh, and an eclipse would only take place when it's a new moon. So we can't explain it like that. Mark is indicating here that this darkness is very, very unique. It's, it's not like any other darkness that the world has seen. And brothers and sisters, in the Bible, darkness usually, almost always, represents judgment. Remember the ninth plague against Egypt. That was during the Exodus, Exodus chapter 10. Darkness covered the whole earth for three days. God was judging Egyptians. The prophets indicate, too, that with the judgment of the Lord comes darkness. Isaiah chapter 13, Joel 23. It's literally all over the Old Testament. Amos chapter 8, verse 9. 
In that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Amos, that day that Amos is prophesying about, that's happening in the death of Jesus on the cross. Now, isn't it interesting that that Mark actually doesn't try and explain the darkness. He simply tells us that for three hours, from noon to three, there was this absolute, eerie, unnatural darkness over the whole land. So for three hours, the focus is not on any human activity, but it's on this eerie, unnatural darkness. And the darkness doesn't go all the way until midnight. The darkness actually ends with the death of Jesus. So what's going on here? Well, something very unique is happening here in the death of Jesus. This is God's divine judgment. God the Father, God the Creator, darkens his creation as Jesus hangs on the cross. So this darkness is is God's frown. It's God's displeasure. It's God's terrible judgment. This is God's righteous anger. And the obvious question then is, well, who is God angry with? Is he angry with the Romans? Is he angry with the Jews? Is he angry with the scoffers who wouldn't believe? Is he angry with all of the above? Is he angry with me and you? And that's the reality, church, that we need to understand here in the death of Jesus on the cross. On the cross, God's righteous anger, his frown, his displeasure, his terrible judgment is directed primarily at his own son. His own son. And that's the second thing we see here on the cross. On the cross, Jesus is forsaken by God. Jesus is forsaken by God. Verse 34, and at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I know some of you here have have maybe been with, with a loved one, a friend, a, someone, who, someone who's maybe dying. Maybe you were in the hospital room with them. Maybe you were at home. Maybe it was a hospice situation. But, but you were right there for that person's last few minutes, those last few breaths of life. If something like this happened, that would be deeply disturbing. I mean, if you're near a dying person, they're clinging to the very last moments of life, and it's, it's quiet, and suddenly, with their last words, they cry out, my God, why have you left me alone? Why have you abandoned me? I mean, that would rock your world. That would rock an atheist's world. Those are the kind of words that would just haunt you, probably for the rest of your life. I mean, when, when family, you wouldn't talk about that. When other family gathered around, you would not repeat what maybe your friend or loved one said with their very last words. You would want to forget them because, well, they are so deeply disturbing. Many Christians, and in fact, there are even some churches here who, who love to think about Jesus basically only in one way. They think about Jesus as a really good example to follow. 
And of course, yes, we want to be like him, we want to emulate him. What would Jesus do? What has Jesus done? Of course, there's truth in all of that. We want to pattern our lives after him, but but these same people in these same churches, this, this is all they kind of think. They, they really like the ethics of Jesus. They, they're not too fond of his doctrine, it seems. But they basically say, look, if, if Jesus is simply a good man, that's all he was, and he left us a good example to follow, and we're supposed to follow his example, then what in the world are we supposed to do with this cry of dereliction from the cross? Is that what you and I are supposed to do with our very last breath here on earth? Are we supposed to follow Jesus' example here and cry out, my God, why have you left me alone? Why have you abandoned me? I mean, who wants to copy that? And the answer is nobody. So in this case, Jesus left us a terrible example to follow. Well, what's going on here? Jesus severed his silence with a great shout. It's from Psalm 22, verse 1. Notice what he says. My God, my God. Even in his abandonment, it is a cry of faith. And this cry of faith, brothers and sisters, is so much more than Jesus feeling like he was abandoned by God. This is so much more than Jesus identifying with us in our weakness and in our sufferings. Of course he does that. This is so much more than Jesus teaching us an object lesson about God's love and how to face hardships in life. When Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? This is the cry of real, objective God forsakenness. And that's the central objective of the cross. Jesus would face the just wrath of God for our sins. And so the reason then that Jesus felt as if he was forsaken by God, his heavenly father, as he hung on the cross, is because that's exactly what was happening. He was forsaken by God on the cross. The apostle Paul understood this very well. Galatians chapter three, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How did he do that? It's as if Paul's anticipating that question. That's really good news. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Do you see what's happening? On the cross, God the Father treats Jesus as cursed. And so when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? It's at that point, brothers and sisters, that Jesus drinks the cup. The cup of God's wrath that, yes, you and I deserve. That was that same cup. Remember Mark chapter 14, verse 36. Jesus, in his cry of anguish, he cries out, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. That's the cup of judgment for our sins. It's the cup that we deserve to drink. It's the cup that Jesus drank on the cross. And you might be here and think, well, why does he have to drink that cup at all? Well, because God is holy. And because God is just. And because we are not. Our sins must be punished. 
So it is, brothers and sisters, as if all of your sins, sins of commission, sins of omission, that is, all the evil things that you've ever thought or done and all the good things that you failed to do, God takes all that blackness and darkness and sin and shame and he puts it into liquid form. Puts it in a cup. It all goes into a cup. All of your sins, your shame, your guilt, all of that. All God's judgment goes into this, your cup. And at the end of your life, when you see a holy God face to face, this is the cup that you have merited. This is the cup that you deserve to drink. This is the cup that you must drink. At that moment, that's not the time to think about taking the gospel a little bit more seriously. That's that's not the time to think about, you know what, I feel like I probably should make some changes. Uh, You know, I want to be a better husband. I mean, we prayed about that. I want to learn to submit. I want to surrender more. I could be more joyful. That's not the time to do that because it's going to be too late. Either you will drink the cup of all of your sins which means that you will be separated from God the Father who created you and loves you for all eternity in hell, or somebody else has to drink that cup. Somebody needs to save you and me. And there's the gospel. On the cross, Jesus drank your cup. And he drank all of it. And it's not just one or two cups. It's, Danny, all of your cup. Kelly, all your cup. Annie, all your cup. TJ, all your cup. Tim, all your cup. All mine. Everybody's cup. All of our dark and black and sin-filled liquid Jesus drank for us. And you know what he did? When, When Jesus drinks the cup that you deserve, he doesn't just give you an empty cup in return so that we're kind of in a position of neutrality. No, he offers to you his cup. That is the cup of the new covenant in return. What that means is he offers you a new relationship with him. A new relationship where you can know him as king and Messiah and savior. A new relationship where your sins no longer condemn you. That you can freely confess your sins before him. That you can go before a holy God and not die. He offers to you his cup. Jesus drank the cup of all of our sins to the dregs. And he offers his full cup of life, life eternal in a new covenant relationship with him. So I don't know what your last words on earth might be. I don't know if you'll speak anything. I don't know what I'm going to say. But I do know this. Because the last words of Jesus on the cross were, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Your last words don't need to be that. Because Jesus was forsaken, you won't be. If your trust is in him, if you put your faith in him. Here's the third thing that happens on the cross. At the cross, people are mistaken. Verses 35 and 36. The cross, people, people are mistaken. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Now, some of the people heard Jesus cry, and they thought he was calling on Elijah to save him. And to be fair, Jesus' cry here 
L-O-I, L-O-I sounds very, very similar to the Hebrew for Elijah. And added to that fact was there was this very widespread, very popular kind of cultural belief in first century Palestine that Elijah was sort of the patron saint of sufferers. So if you got into a lot of trouble, well, maybe call an Elijah because that guy didn't die, so he might come and help you. So there were many around the cross who were witnessing this that just assumed, well, obviously Jesus must be calling out to Elijah. And if he is, well, let's get him something to kind of keep him sufficiently alert. Let's just see what's going to go down here. I mean, wow, we might want to journal about this later. And what these people don't realize is that Jesus is not calling out to Elijah. He's calling out and crying out to God. Not everyone then, and not everyone now gets and understands what's going on here at the cross. And if you don't understand the cross, you're really not going to make sense of Jesus and his mission and his purpose. And even more, if you're mistaken about the cross, if you just think, I don't want to talk about death, I don't want to talk about that anymore, I don't know why you people do, you just want to ignore it then guess what? The resurrection of Jesus next week, that's not going to make a whole lot of sense to you either. And if you're here and you're still uncertain about who this Jesus is, who is it that actually died on the cross and why, then you are actually in grave spiritual danger this morning. Because if you're unclear about who Jesus is, and if you're not quite sure what went down at the cross, then you're actually not ready to face your own death. So actually, this sermon is about you. And it is about your death. And it is about your life. Fourth, on the cross, Jesus cries out one final time. On the cross, Jesus cries out one final time. Verse 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and he breathed his last. Now this is actually pretty astonishing. Very, very surprising This is not something that Jesus should be able to do. He's been scourged. Most most guys died just simply from being scourged. It was that brutal. He's been scourged. He's been beaten. He's dehydrated. He's bleeding profusely. Those who die by crucifixion and certainly by scourging, they're not supposed to have the strength to say anything, let alone a cry from the cross. And so the implication here, really, that that Mark is getting at here, is that Jesus dies voluntarily, and he dies still in control. He's in control of his senses. He's still in control of his faculties, even to his last breath. Mark, Mark doesn't say exactly what he says here with that last breath. John says the last words of Jesus were, it is finished. Luke says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The point that, again, Mark is making here is that Jesus' life was not taken from him. Jesus freely gave up his life. Jesus entered into death willingly, voluntarily, sacrificially, dare I say, even joyfully. Why? To give us life eternal. Fifth, at the cross, the curtain is torn. The curtain is torn, verse 38. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top 
to bottom. Now, you might read this and think, wow, that's cool. God gets into the special effects game after all. But, like, again, what's with the drama? This curtain is torn from top to bottom, meaning that no human being could do this. This is God's work. Only God could do that. Why? Well, because it's a very, very large curtain. That curtain was 60 feet high, 30 feet wide. I don't know what our, I should have measured that, but anyway, I don't know what this backdrop is, but it's, it's a lot high, 60 feet high. Is this 60 feet high? How, how high is it? 25. 60 feet high, 30 feet wide. Like that curtain's not, it's not like grabbing a shower curtain and just saying, you know, I'm just going to rip this and uh, we'll just replace it with another one. Not at all. The writer of Hebrews fills in some really important details. There were actually two curtains here in the temple, one separating the court of the Gentiles and one for the most holy place, that is, the holy of holies. Now, we need to understand that Israel's entire system of worship was based on one fundamental truth. And that fundamental truth was that God is not to be approached lightly. That worshiping God is serious business. He's not to be trifled with. And so the entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament, it was like a flashing neon sign for the average Israelite that just kept blinking, and it just kept blinking. Every time they'd get near the temple, it would keep blinking. And you know what it's blinking? It was not saying, well, you're good enough, come on in. You tried hard this week, enter. The sun will come up. No, that neon sign was blinking, God is holy and you are not. God is holy and you are not. So if you're an Israelite coming to the temple, you're there to worship, you understand that God is holy and that you are not. So there are only certain places you would dare go. You're not going into the holy of holies. You're not going behind the curtain. Why? Well, there's a 60 by 30 foot curtain to remind you that you can't go there. The only person who could go there was the high priest. And that would happen once a year, and the high priest would need to make sure that he had bathed and changed, he has to put special clothes on, he has to take a pure and spotless lamb, an undefiled lamb, and when he goes uh, behind the curtain there, he would offer up the blood of this spotless lamb for the sins of the people. It was very elaborate. So again, if you're an average Israelite, you would never casually say, hey, you know, what do you, what do you guys want to do tonight? You, you want to take a peek behind the curtain? You want to, why don't we go to the Holy of Holies? No, you, you wouldn't do that because you would die. That's why we don't read about people in the Old Testament who are, who are rushing to get to, to, to the temple on time so that they can maybe get a sneak peek and get a look behind the curtain. Generally speaking, most of us, most human beings try to stay away from places where they would die, generally speaking. Now, with the death of Jesus on the cross, God the Father tears this curtain, and he tears it from top to bottom. That signaled the end of the temple. In other words, true religion was no longer found in a building or in going to a specific building, but now it would be found and placed in Jesus Christ, faith in him. 
So a new way has been opened. A new way has been opened irrevocably so that sinners like us in need of cleansing, in need of forgiveness, that we might have direct access to God and not die. I mean, just think about that. That we might have direct access to God and still live because of the death of Jesus. So you and I actually do have access to a holy God and we don't have to die. That's really the point that the writer of Hebrews makes. Hebrews chapter 10. Let me read verses 19 through 22. Just let this land on your heart. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. We have, what does he say? Confidence. We actually have confidence to enter the holy place. Now, what that means then is no longer, like that would be a bad thing if we had to all go to the temple in Israel to be forgiven of our sins. I mean, we'd be trying to get tickets. But we don't have to do that. Why? Because there's no more sacrifices to make. Jesus completed it on the cross. There's no more holy of holies behind the curtain. You know what there is? You have the Holy Spirit now in you who dwells in you. No longer do you need to go to a priest to offer up prayers on your behalf. In Christ we have a great high priest. So yes, through Jesus Christ you have direct access to a holy God because God the Father has torn the curtain in two from top to bottom. Because Jesus died in your place. So practically, yeah, that actually means that you can talk to God, a holy God, whenever and for whatever reason that you desire. You and I have direct access to the God of this universe. Now you might hear that and think, well yeah, that, that's really good. Yeah, I'm super thankful for that. And yeah, I get it, I gotta pray more. Prayer's hard for me. I try to do that consistently. I like to talk to him, I need to do it more. But yeah, he listens, no big deal. That's kind of his job, right? He's supposed to listen. Well, just think about that for a moment. Because oftentimes we can be so cavalier and, and oftentimes so casual in our relationship with God, we just naturally assume, well, why wouldn't he want to talk to me? I'm American. <laughs> I mean, does anybody here have direct access to Coach Mark Few, coach of the Gonzaga Bulldogs? I mean, if, is he going to take your call? If you're driving home and you text him and say, hey, I just happen to have a basketball in the trunk, I was hoping you and I, maybe one-on-one, -on -one, 3 p.m. today. Is, is he going to return that call? Probably not. Now, maybe some of you, maybe, there, there's one or two here, maybe, but li not likely. Why? Because you don't have access to Coach Few. Now, what about, what about the mayor? Do you have access to the mayor? What about the governor? How about President Biden? I mean, look, we live in a democracy, praise God. 
It's not a monarchy. It's not a dictatorship. Elected folks like, or elected, or sorry, common people like us are supposed to have access to their elected leaders, right? Okay, so let's say you take that to heart and so you begin to send President Biden a bunch of emails, like every other day for a couple years. And you're just saying, hey, like, I read in civics class that I'm supposed to have access to the president, so I'm just going to start sending some emails. You don't hear anything back at all, so you say, okay, not to worry. Uh, I'm, I'm going to just maybe write some handwritten notes to him. And so you send those, dear President Biden, love Jeff. And to, to your knowledge, he's not responding yet. You're not hearing anything from the president. You keep thinking, well, I should have access to the president because, like I said, I'm a good tax-paying American. But still no response, and you think, well, not to worry. It seems like the only way that I'm going to have direct access to the president is I I need to go see him. And so you know that he lives in a big house, and it's white, and it's in Washington, D.C. And so you say, okay, you hop on a plane, you get off, you carry all your boxes of letters, and you think, I'm just going to go knock on the front door of the White House with all of my letters. That's the way I'll have access to President Biden. Please don't do that, because you're not going to get access to President Biden. You know what you will be granted access to? A very small room in the middle of Kansas for not less than five years. You and I don't have direct access to Coach Few, to a mayor, to a governor, and certainly not to President Biden. But somehow we think, I can just kind of keep living as I am. There's a God up there. I have direct access to him. No big deal. When I pray, throw up a prayer, he's going to hear me. It took the death of God's own son, Jesus. It took his crucifixion, and it took God the Father tearing the curtain from top to bottom to grant you access, direct access to God so that when you see him and when you go into his presence, you won't die. So maybe our first prayer needs to be, my God, My God, thank you, thank you. Sixth and finally, here's what happened at the cross. At the cross, lives are changed. Lives are changed, verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. This is actually the whole point of Mark's gospel. Mark tells us way back in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the very first verse that he's writing to tell us the story, the story about Jesus. Jesus is indeed the Son of God. And way back in chapter 1, God the Father obviously knows that, the baptism of Jesus. The demons, way back in chapter 1, they also know that too, because the de- they're, they're scattering, saying this is the Son of God. But it's not until Mark 15, verse 39, almost to the very end of the gospel, that the first human being in all of human history confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. And some of you are thinking, well, wait a minute, what about Peter's confession? Yes, Peter confessing, you are the Christ. Similar, but different. Jesus, this man hanging limp on a cross, body beaten to a pulp, this man shamed by everyone, abandoned, This man, says this Roman centurion, this man who died in front of me, this guy is the Son of God. It's a remarkable confession. Astonishing, surprising. Because the family of Jesus doesn't get it. The disciples don't get it. 
The, the religious elites, right, they, they miss him completely. It's not even a Jewish person who makes this confession. It is, of all people, a pagan Roman executioner who sees Jesus for who he really is. And he confesses, this man is the Son of God. So what was it about Jesus that would cause this pagan soldier to say this about him? Well, Mark doesn't record anything other than that he breathed his last. So we're, we can't be exactly sure. But here's what we do know. This, this centurion, this leader, he's not freaking out by crucifixion. This isn't just sort of some knee-jerk emotional response. I don't know what to say. I'm just going to start saying stuff. No, he's, this is his job. He's seen hundreds of men be executed in the past. That's his job to make sure that happens. And so at this point, the only thing he can be clear on, the one thing that is clear is that this man who died on the cross, this man is the son of God. And he would have no good reason to say this if this were not true. In fact, he would be inviting hardship. He, he very well may be inviting his own death to confess this. Even he, this pagan Roman executioner, he looks at Jesus and says, there's something different about this. This is not a normal crucifixion. This is not a normal death. This is the very Son of God. And so this pagan Roman soldier, this centurion becomes among the most unlikely of people to confess the truth about Jesus. Maybe you're here and you say, you know what, I, I kind of feel like that centurion this morning. I mean, Jesus seems to make a difference. Jesus is good for other people, but I'm not sure about me. I, I don't think I could get there. When I, when I do my tally sheet, I feel like I'm one of the more unlikely people to confess Christ. Are you, though, really? Like, I just don't think you can win that award. Because this guy was more unlikely than you. And he actually believes. You know, it may be that you're discouraged this morning. Some of you maybe have been praying and praying for the conversion of a loved one, a family member. You want them to receive Christ. You've been going before the Lord faithfully. And so far, nothing really seems to be happening, at least nothing that you can point to. Or perhaps... You, you're wondering, do, do I keep trying to be faithful here? Do I keep sharing what I've been sharing? Do I, do I keep trying to be a faithful witness because it doesn't seem like my dad's ever going to believe or my husband is as stubborn as they come or my sister doesn't appear to ever going to repent of her sins? Are they more unlikely than this Roman centurion who's actually killing Jesus? Or maybe you're here and you're, kind of waffling a little bit, maybe afraid to take a stand for Jesus, to declare the truth. It could be that you're the only one in your family who truly believes, or maybe you're the only one at your school, you're the only one in your circle of friends, you're the only one in your office that you know of who actually knows the truth, who believes the gospel, who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And so there is kind of an awkwardness there, isn't there, because praise God, he's opened up your eyes, you, you know him to be who he says he is, but then kind of everybody around you doesn't know. And you kind of wonder, well, how, they're all wrong, and I actually believe the truth. The centurion is only one. He's the only one 
but he got it. No one else seemed to. Now, next week, yes, there's going to be a few other unlikely people. There's women, very unlikely, who testify to the resurrection of Jesus. But if you are, if you are that only person here this morning and you're maybe feeling alone, this, this is why you need a local church. Because you're not meant to do life by yourself. You're not meant to do life alone. You're not meant to struggle alone. You need brothers and sisters who will walk with you and love you and pray for you and serve you. Church, these, these six verses here are both weighty and wonderful. And the most important things that we learn about Jesus, we actually learn right here on the cross. We learn at his death. You know what else we see here on the cross? We see the, the scandal of Christianity. And the scandal of Christianity is that somehow both verse 34 and 39 are true. Because on the cross, Jesus was forsaken by God, his heavenly Father. And yet, verse 39, Jesus is the true Son of God. So how can it be both? How can both be true in the death of Jesus? I mean, if Jesus is the Son of God, how can he experience that brutal death, the shame, the abandonment? And if he was really forsaken and absorbed the holy wrath of God, how can he still be God? And the short answer is that his death is unlike any other death. His death is both weighty and wonderful. The scandal is that through his atoning death, because Jesus was forsaken, those who trust in him will never be forsaken. Because he paid the price, salvation is ours through faith. Really, brothers and sisters, the scandal is if you actually believe in Jesus Christ, if you have put your faith in him, you believe in Christ crucified, that he is the son of God, then there is nothing more that you need to do to be saved. There's nothing more. Now, I know I'm, I'm talking to some really good church people here. But even good church people can struggle and doubt and wonder, is the gospel really free? Is it that good news? I mean, I know it's good news, but is it, is it that good news? Like, don't I have to still prove myself? Don't I, don't I have to perform? Isn't Jesus up there making sure that, you know, last week, oof, not good. And the week before that, let's not even talk about that. This week, a little better. So we kind of judge our spiritual life based on how well we think we are doing Try to be a good person, good. I try to be kind, I try to be moral. I mean, I want others to think of me as a good person. Can I just say this, and I say this with great affection and love for you all, on behalf of all people everywhere. You're not a good person. You're not, and, and I'm not either. And if we were, though, if we were good, or just good enough, there would be no need for a cross. And there would be no need for Jesus to die on the cross. And so if you're here and you persist in saying, well, I gotta do something. I mean, the gospel can't be totally free. I gotta earn my keep. I gotta prove myself. Well, it seriously suggests that Jesus did not do enough. That you're gonna kind of help him save you. Don't do that. It's gonna be miserable. Jesus drank your cup for you. Salvation 
Salvation in Christ is a free gift of God's mercy and grace for people like you and me, for all of us who do not deserve his mercy and his grace. So there's nothing more you need to do to earn or merit your spot on Team Jesus. But you can turn to him. You can receive him with thanksgiving, with a heart of thankfulness. You can leave here with a little bit more gratitude and joy and hope for his grace given for you. You can, because you have the Holy Spirit inside of your heart, you can continue to grow and obey him in the little things and in the big things. And you can make it your goal to please Jesus in all things. And yes, you can never cease to praise God for his indescribable gift, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 15. Your only hope in life and death, my only hope in life and death, is to believe in the name of Jesus Christ. What good is it if you're in the best physical shape of your life, but you're still going to hell? What good is having an ultra-organized home, but your heart is so discombobulated that it's been weeks since you last heard the voice of Jesus? What good is it if you gain the whole world? Other people are talking about you. They want to be you. They want your wife, your life, your spouse, your house. What good is it if everybody else compares themselves to you and they always come up on the short end of the stick? But what good is it if on judgment day, Jesus looks at you and says, depart from me because I never knew you? That doesn't mean, that means nothing unless you are born again. You need to be born again. Church, on Friday afternoon, this Friday, death swallowed Jesus. And on Sunday, you know what happened? It was discovered that Jesus had swallowed death. So if you're in Christ, you're united to him by faith, then his victory becomes yours, and one day, yes, when you die physically, your physical death will be swallowed up in his victory. And I don't know what you will say on that day. I don't know what I'm going to say. Maybe we don't say anything. But I pray that you believe. And if you do happen to say even just the few words, in Christ, it's not going to be, my God, my God, why have you left me alone? It's not going to be that. Maybe it'll be, my God, my God, thank you for not forsaking me. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your great love. Thank you for the cross.